This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, we gave away a lot of cash. And we're coming off of one of AOPA's most successful fly-ins from Bremerton, Washington, with two more yet to go in this flying season. All right, we're going to welcome lots of new pilots, uh, remote pilots, that is. That's right, and we're going to take a look back, Ian, at 911 15 years later. All right, Dave, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk. All right, Dave, let's get right into it. Our number five story this week, Fly-Ins, you teased it, um, coming off Bremerton, a really popular event. It was huge, Ian. I was out there, and it was just, first of all, a gorgeous part of the country mm-hmm. in the Seattle area. Bremerton is a suburb, and uh, you have the Olympic Mountains, the uh, Cascade Mountains. It was hugely popular because the weather was good. Yeah. We had a lot of good safety seminars, and it's a lot of camaraderie. That, that Friday night barnstormers party is starting to be the thing to do. Yeah, so uh, usually at these we get anywhere, I guess if the weather is good between, let's call it 1,500 and 2,500 folks, and maybe... 300-ish airplanes. We blew, uh, blew the doors off of that one, yeah. and we had over 4,000 attendees at that, 500 awesome. more than any previous fly-in. Wow. And uh, we had, uh, i got to check the uh, story for the number of campers, but I could tell you what, it was it was tent to tent over yeah. in that infield area, and uh, we had several really good uh aircraft on displays and uh, in fact many airplanes on display and we had a really wonderful Friday night band it was a U2 uh, band called U two fifty three tribute band. <laughs> they look just like it. It was amazing. They got like the whole the mannerisms and the outfits, and they have the edge, you know, skull cap down. Was, yeah, they did. And yeah. actually, the backdrop was really cool. Uh, we had a B twenty five as a backdrop there, mm. and it was just a really interesting thing. And the B twenty five actually gave rise on Saturday. Awesome. So um, I've only been to one of these so far. You've been to a couple. One thing I love about the flyings is um, I think the price is right, right? It's free. Uh, you got to pay for a little bit for foods, like five bucks for breakfast. And um, what else, why else do you think people are coming? Well, that's an interesting uh, question, Ian. I will tell you this: that um, it depends on the venue, but in this case, in Bremerton. There was a, a, a good word of mouth going on before that. The AOPA, you know, let people know through our news stories in uh, AOPA Pilot Magazine mm-hmm. and ePilot on our newsletters. But um, interestingly, 
folks over there saw a stream of cars and airplanes headed towards that airport, and they showed up. So a lot of locals. A at this lot point. of locals That's at this awesome. one, and they were really happy to have us there. And of course, it brings in you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to the local community. I think over half a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, right. All, all said and done, and um, well, I think people really like the fact that AOPA is bringing the party to the people mm-hmm. instead of having the people come to the party. Does yeah. that make any sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know Oshkosh and Sun and Fun and other events. Uh, they're they're great fun, uh, but they're a commitment. I mean, you're talking multiple days, hotels, everything else. Mm-hmm. And with flying, I mean, really, you just come and hang out at the airport if that's all you want to do. It is. And it's a, it's a good situation. It's a real neat place to, uh, you know, a real neat weekend to set aside for yourself. And you don't have to have a whole week off from work, that kind of thing. And we have been picking different regional air um, airports in the country that are conducive to a particular type of flying or that we knew that uh, that we wanted to have people come to it, that we yeah. wanted people to have access. Yeah, so we're, we're spreading the love, I guess. Yeah, and people really loved it. I mean, speaking of love, they uh, they camped out. They had uh, you know had a lot of camaraderie. I saw some people playing folk guitar, things like oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's hard to believe, that? but it was That's really cool. cool. That's cool. So two more to go. Um, a couple that I think are going to be exciting. Um, Battle Creek. Which, if uh, you're from the area, you know what's great about it. But maybe if you're not, um, you're not familiar with some of it. But one of the coolest things is that Waco is the backdrop for this. That's right. They have that really interesting biplane, and they also make the is it the Great, great Lakes, Lakes uh, yeah. baby baby biplanes? Yeah. Really, really cool. And yeah. Waco all by hand, yeah. all by hand. I was going to say that uh, to reiterate that it's a it's a totally by hand operation with some modern materials as well and some mm. modern techniques, but. Hand built and just works of art. Yeah, and so it's funny con- to contrast that across the field. Um, hearing from folks who've been there is Duncan Aviation, which is one of the biggest jet service centers in the world, really, uh, with a lot of really high tech gear and uh, really expert craftsmen. But on the other end of it, so that's pretty neat. We got the whole thing covered. There. You got the seat of the pants flying on one yeah. side, and you got the the big iron on the other. Yeah, and then, and then there's everyone in between. Yeah, yeah, right. And so that's uh, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. That's um, coming up in on September 17th weekend. Okay. And following that, folks could make plans to go out to Prescott, Arizona, the home of Embry Riddle's uh, campus in Arizona, on yeah. October the first. Okay. Now, the most important question about this: You said Prescott. Uh-oh. I've heard both. Is it Prescott or oh. Prescott? I don't know. But you know what? It probably is Prescott. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm from the South <laughs> and I mispronounce a bunch of stuff. <laughs> no, no. I only ask because it's like we, we joke about these because it's like everyone, is it Beaufort or Buford? Is it Prescott? Is it Prescott? It's like we have all these towns that we have to learn how to pronounce properly before we go there. It know? was Beaufort for sure. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. you know that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You can tell by my accent. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, Prescott, Arizona. And, yeah. and uh, again, home of Embry-Riddle, mm-hmm. which is uh, huge. Yep. And uh, in fact, I just uh, spoke to uh, a pilot who was at Bremerton. Uh, Shinji Maeda, and he graduated from the Prescott uh, campus over okay. in Embry Riddle. Okay. So that is a really interesting place to go. But but before Beautiful that, don't forget don't forget yeah. Battle Creek. Before that, it's coming up quick. So make your plans if you haven't already. And you are right. The price is right. It's a it's just a couple bucks for uh, for lunch and for the pancake breakfast, which mm-hmm. is still a lot of fun. Yeah. You got the Rusty Pilot seminars that have That's been right. hugely popular. And now with third class medical entering into the equation. We know that of uh, July 15th next year, uh, people will no longer have to get as extensive 
of an airman's medical exam as they used to have. So that should bring more pilots back into the system so that rusty yeah. pilot seminars is a good thing to go to. Yeah, it's going to be a big deal. Air Safety Institute seminars with George Perry and some other notables. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got uh, we got the spin doctor, Catherine Cavignero. Yep, she's going to be there. Oh, and this one, um, I think I heard they're bringing back some of the aerial demo stuff. Uh, Ember Riddle's going to sponsor that. Oh, cool. So there's going to be a little bit of uh, stuff going on in the air, too. Nice. For this one. So, awesome. Good thing to do. Yeah, AOPA.org for those um, to find out schedules and register. And please do so. Oh, and by the way. If you like to help out, if you like to volunteer at the airport, volunteer for the shows. We'll feed you. We'll give you a really um, loud, vibrant shirt, and uh, and you get to help out your fellow pilots. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. All right, uh, number four, money, money, let's, money. We let's talk about scholarships. Well, yeah. fifteen individuals were uh, selected as winners of the 2016 AOPA flight training scholarships. Now, this is really huge. That it gives a lot of people a chance to continue their aviation education or start their aviation education. Mm-hmm. Now, would you think it's mainly for young people? Well, that's the way most scholarships are. So It is, but in this case, mm-hmm. we've actually uh, given away some money for some other folks who are a little bit more mature, let's All say, right. a, little bit, a little bit older in their flight training. Okay. And, and so you can have folks that are of the normal high school, college age, as uh-huh. well as folks in their 50s oh, wow. to continue their aviation studies. They might be going for an IFR uh, rating or something like that, or commercial certification, that kind of thing. Okay. Fantastic. So um, 15 awarded, and I heard we have hundreds and hundreds of applications, I know. Yes, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there having to count them up yeah. or having to determine who got what. Yeah. But the grants were uh, ranging between $2,500 all the way up to $12,000. Wow, wow. Significant. And, um, yeah, and those all come through the AOP Foundation. That's um, right. So those are private donors that uh, just want to really give back and, and want to see the next crop of aviators come into come into it. That's true. And the AOPA Foundation can always use donations from other pilots and, and aviation-minded individuals. And that is something that directly founds uh, and funds, rather, those scholarships. That mm-hmm. doesn't really come out of our normal yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. budget. Cool, cool. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, I love this third story. Um, Santa Monica. This is uh, this is becoming like a Groundhog Day sort of story. Santa Monica wants to close the airport. I know that at this point, this is a little bit of a uh, dog bites man story, but uh, this is kind of the latest in the long saga of Santa Monica. So you know, it, take, it took me a little while to wrap my head around this bad boy, but <laughs> but, but it looks like the city, you know, wants to close down their airport um, ultimately because if you haven't seen a picture of it it's really it's like an island surrounded by by uh, housing but it's a huge asset to the community and whenever you talk about an asset to the community and you've got to talk a little bit about taxes a little bit about the Mm -hmm. economy and a little bit about what aviation brings to people and and really flight training and helping the next generation of pilots some of the folks who we just talked about with the scholarships, uh, get in the air, that kind of thing. So you don't want to stifle that. Yeah, uh, They've actually spent millions of dollars and, and wasted countless hours trying to fight this. And uh, our AOPA President Mark Baker's behind our efforts and uh, really we're slapping the city of Santa Monica on the butt to try to make them see the light of day they just what they just what need to abide by their agreement with the faa right yeah that's right so um it's very simple and i love uh, we had a, a segment about this on aopa live and ken mead you know, um you know who's our general counsel he had a great quote he's like it's really simple they took the money 
they have the obligation. So if you're not aware, the way it works is that um, if you take FAA funding for your airport improvement project, you agree to keep that airport operating for 20 years. Right. Uh, no ifs, ands, or buts. It's actually very simple. Take the money, 20 years. And so there's Ken, and he says, they took the money, they made the agreement, and that's all there is to it. They keep trying to close the airport. They can't. It's that simple. Yeah, it really is that simple. And so they're really just wasting their time. And I, one thing I love about this story is that just a couple days after they voted once again uh, to close the airport, the FAA actually came out publicly, which doesn't happen very often, I think. You know, it's like we might prod them to make a statement or um, they kind of watch it um, yeah. just quietly. Um, they know what's going on, but they, they watch it. But they actually sure. came out and, uh, and said, hey, you took the money, keep the airport open. So, That's right. Just yeah. You sign the agreement, live up to your word. Yep. And, um, you know, I think uh, we make a lot of uh, a deal out of Santa Monica. We've spent money there. We try, We fought hard to keep this airport uh, around we've uh, done a number of different initiatives to just make sure that pilots are aware of what's going on in Santa Monica and, and making sure that we're fighting for it. And one of the reasons is is because um, I suppose a little bit like Megs or, or the others. I mean, this is it's you know it's being made an example of. Sure, um, sure is. Not to mention it's obviously a really popular airport, and there are a number of people who fly out of it um, and a number of businesses that uh, that depend on it. But um, it's uh, I, you know I think we'll just see this continue over and over again. Now the 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 obligation only goes to 2023, so um, it's going to get a little more heated after that. But, uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, is that um, we also have, uh, you know, we talked about the flight training ops. We talked about GA. We talked about the taxes uh, from fuel and, and really the paying taxes to the county. But how is the city of Santa Monica being, I mean, how are they able to keep fighting this? I mean, how much money does that cost? It's got to be millions. It's and, be. and really, all they need to do is abide by their agreement. Yeah, just wait. They said they'd do it. <laughs> they just need to do it. Yeah, that's right. It's a waste. All right. So um, in better news, in more interesting news uh, about drones, part 107, that was, um, what, August 29th, I think it was, right on. Um, a Monday. That rule became effective. Part 107, you'll hear this thrown around a lot. That basically means drones, commercial drone operators right? Um, for smaller drones will operate under 107. And what this is going to mean for all of us is hundreds of thousands of new pilots. That is true. And that could only do uh, positive good for the flying community. I think as people get interested in drone flying, they'll probably get a little bit more interested in flying what my friend Rusty calls full-scale airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> Rusty Jarrett flies RC uh, airplanes. I like that. But... Uh, I think more than 3,300 people signed up to take that FAA knowledge test on the first day it was available. Yeah. So that's a popular thing. It is. So that's what you have to do to get that uh, remote pilot certificate. You just uh, you take a knowledge test. And uh, heard from one of our own here at AOPA, Chris Rose, uh-huh. um, who was not uh, previously a certificated pilot. He took the test on the first day. He said it was hard. It was. And he, and he studied hard. Uh-huh. Um, he and I were uh, going over some stuff beforehand. And... I mean, you're talking questions that are beyond, I would say, the private pilot knowledge That's test. interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's, it takes it a step beyond what you and I have learned. Yeah. Because we are, we are certificated pilots. Yeah, right. And so um, these guys, they'll know airspace. They wanted them to know how to read a METAR and a TAF. Oh, cool. You know, they know how to read charts. So the, they know all about airports and uh, communications at airports. So That's good. Um, yeah, and it all goes to the point of, of AOPA's position on this, which is safe integration. We were, right. we're working hard on 
safe integration of these folks into the national airspace system. And the meet, and you know, knowing the METARs and the TAFs is that is that no before you go philosophy too. I mean, yeah. checking NOTAMs and all, and really the safe integration helps us out. Uh, drone pilots and um, and private pilots alike, because we want to be safe. We don't want to be bumping into any other thing while we're up there. Yeah. And it's nice to know that folks know the regulations and how to do it safely. Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. It's important. Yeah. So um, between uh, part 107, looking forward. Now we're going to look back a little bit. Our, our number one story. Sad anniversary, um, 15 years after 9-11. That's right. September the uh, 11th, uh, 2001, was a day that will remain in infamy for Mm -hmm. anyone who lived through that. And um, it's one of those things that I think, Ian, that when you look back at it, if you were alive at that time, you will remember what you were doing on that day and how it affected you. Yeah. You know, I always um, remember my grandparents talking about knowing where they were on December 7th, 1941. Oh, wow. And I always... Thought that was kind of fascinating that they would remember so long ago, and uh, and I was I didn't ever understood why. And then September 11th happened, and uh, it is one of those days during our lifetime. That's probably the most significant thing that's happened, in, at least in my lifetime. Yeah. And uh, you and I were talking about this earlier. I was just completing my flight training as mm-hmm. a private pilot, and mm-hmm. I was trying to. Uh, in fact, that that Tuesday I was supposed to wrap up my check ride. And uh, we all know what happened uh, in the morning when the Twin Towers fell. And, and, of course, it was a sad event for the entire country. We don't want to minimize that or minimalize that. And, you know, a lot of first responders even uh, mm-hmm. got killed. But um, the thing about it for general aviation is that the reverberations exist to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, we have um, lasting uh, legacy of uh, some temporary uh, flight re- restricted areas. We have the uh, Class B um, airspace, which at that time, Melissa Rudinger told us there was a, um, they came up with something called Enhanced Class B just to get pilots back in the air. Yeah. And um, she also told us that it was a real touch and go situation and a lot of misinformation, a lot of confusion. Um, and right at first, if you remember, folks didn't know if it was a small plane or a large plane that hit the first of the Twin Towers. Yeah. So, you know, we um, neither one of us obviously was at AOPA at that point. And so we talked to Melissa um, to find out what, what it was like then. Um, they obviously saw it on TV like everybody else. And I think unlike a lot of people where they spent the day watching TV maybe at home and maybe they, they have a first responder in the family or, or there was some emotional connection, but maybe they weren't directly connected. Of course, the people at AOPA. They were directly uh, affected, um, and they knew it, and so they had to get to work. They lived it. They yeah. were living it night and day, uh, 24-7. In fact, she told us that she camped out at the FAA headquarters there for for weeks in a row, and at one point was, was I don't want to spoil her story, yeah. that she'll tell us about in a little bit, but uh, yeah. I think that she might even hung out on a, on a couch down there. Yeah. yeah, it was fascinating. I love talking to her, and um, you did this for a story that's online. Um, talk to her, and uh, and so we got her back on the phone and and recorded here. So so uh, it'd be great for our members to hear a little bit about the TikTok, what happened back then, and some of the lasting legacy, and how we've spun things forward, and how we've actually gotten together as a group to fly a little bit safer and uh, and not to bust the airspace that those kind of things, but. We also have another interesting legacy, the Airport Watch Program, yeah. which we haven't talked about all that much. No, but uh, you know, you want to keep an eye out on your own airfield in your own backyard and mm-hmm. report anything that that happens that doesn't seem right. Yeah, there's an 800 number to call. 
Yeah, and she gets into that a little bit, how that was started and, and why. And exactly. Fascinating. I, I love talking to her. I thought it was a great conversation. It was good. And, you know, uh, she had to relive that moment. And the folks here, really, they, they put their nose to the grindstone. And they really did the best thing they could to keep us in the air. There's so many so many pilots were stranded around the country. It's something that yeah. you kind of forget about. Yeah, I, I guess I had. And, I you know, I heard a few stories about that. But, um, well... We should let her tell it. It's a great story. All so. right. Let's, let's hear from Melissa Rudiger on the, the 911 15th anniversary as Hangar Talk continues. All right. So we're talking today with uh, Melissa Rudiger. Melissa, tell us a little bit more about um, your duties at AOPA back in 2001. We're coming up on the 15th anniversary of 9-1-1-2001 when America suffered some devastating terrorism attacks. Uh, tell us a little bit about how your day began on that Tuesday. So my role in, uh, in September of 2001 was I was vice president of air traffic services for AOPA. So what that means is any, any issue related to air traffic, airspace, those kinds of things really fell under my area of responsibility, myself and my team. And so that day, actually, anybody that was living in the, in the Northeast, in fact, I think a lot of the country, um, it was a really, really beautiful, crisp, clear, almost mm-hmm. fall-like feeling of, you know, of a day. Yeah, it was. Guys. Beautiful yeah, absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I was at, at the office there in Frederick. I'm based in D.C. now, but at that time I was based in Frederick. And when the first plane hit, there were some folks back then that had, you know, TVs in their office tuned to CNN or wherever. And so the first plane hit, and I don't know if you all recall, but um, at first it was being reported as a small aircraft. That's right. There was a lot lot of confusion at the time. Yeah, it was reported as a small general aviation aircraft. And you really couldn't tell from the visible damage at that point how catastrophic it actually would become. Right. And we were we all gathered in the pub, the uh, publications conference room, which is the conference room that is probably still there, um, and we were watching a television that was in there uh, with a bunch of folks, and when the second tower was hit, it suddenly, like everybody else in the country, it was like you just realized this was not an accident, uh, and and you, you still at that point didn't know the scope of it and, and the size of the aircraft, but it was very clear that something catastrophic was happening. It was just terrifying. It was and, way at, way out, out of the ordinary know. for the for the United States. It was very far out of the ordinary. We weren't used to anything like that. Right, exactly. So it it, it was it was just as well. We all experienced it. I don't have to tell people how it felt, <laughs> but it was it was just. It was horrific on so many levels, and and I think for pilots and for aviation, whether you're regardless of what kind of aviation you're involved in, it just felt very it just felt very horrible that that aviation was used as a weapon. Hmm. Did you guys did you have a sense right away that this was going to be a big deal um, for the association that it was going to be that you knew that things were going to happen as a result there were going to be security issues and that you had to get to work kind of right away. So I think we knew intuitively there were going to be issues, uh, I, and I can only speak for myself. I certainly did not have the capacity to imagine that the system was going to shut down entirely, hmm. and I certainly did after it was shut down. I, maybe I was just naive at that point or in denial, <laughs> but I surely knew we had a, a, a rough road ahead in terms of security and potential restrictions down the line, and you know, we all talked about the fear of airline-style security coming to GA and what that would do. But I certainly, in that first 24 hours, I don't think I imagined that, that it would take so long and that general aviation would be the truly the 
the target of so many potential and re- and real restrictions. And our work really got started on 9-11, but um, when I look at the timeline that I put together from back then, we really didn't get back to what I'll call the new normal until literally 2000, the mid-2003. So, I mean, it, it literally became a multi-year, all, pretty much a full-time job for, for me and for, for some other folks of trying to restore access. One might make the argument that it has never been restored to the levels before 911. Yes, so there there is one glaring exception to, or one glaring part of the new normal, and that's uh, the DC. Well, there's more than one, probably. But the most significant is the DC eighties, or well, like now we call it the the the, the ESFRA, uh, the Special Flight Rules area. But it started out as an eighties, and um, that's the only part of the country where we still have significant restrictions. And that, as you know, that's in our backyard. So, I mean, um, where we all live with it, some are more impacted than others. And we continue to work to try and make the process easier, but the, but but that is a a ongoing airspace restriction that affects some really, really wonderful general aviation airports that have struggled to adapt to that, you know, that, that new normal. Uh, Taking a quick sidestep from that, uh, just briefly, um, we have a lot of TFRs these days, and most pilots are familiar with them, and if they are not, they should go to our website and definitely get familiar with TFRs before they fly. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, Melissa, but before that time in 911, we mainly saw the TFRs pop up for things like hurricanes, fires, tornadoes, those kind of of disasters. So we always had VIP TFRs. So that's, that's not new or, or as a result of 9-11. The difference is, and this is the significant difference, is first of all, they were very small, if my memory serves me correct, three miles, three nautical mile radius around most VIPs um, that, you know, that move with the VIP, much like we do today, except now they're typically 30 nautical mile TFRs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we certainly didn't have TFRs over sporting events. We didn't have flight warnings or advisories over nuclear power plants like we have today. And, and for a while, we had TFRs over nuclear power plants. Um, so, so the biggest new normal for TFRs are for VIP movements, they become huge. And um, and the way they're enforced has changed. I uh, In the past, uh, it wasn't as, I shouldn't say it wasn't as serious, but the potential to be shot down or escorted was much lower back before 9-11 because you didn't have the military or, or the security uh, folks operating the way they do today. They p- provide layers of security today that's not as passive, perhaps, as it would have been post or pre-9-11. Yeah. So, so that's definitely changed. That's why I don't want to understate that, that there haven't been lasting impacts. There have been. But um, when you look at where we started... Um, we have we've restored virtually all of our freedoms, and I think um, you know we need to recognize that it it was it, the potential for permanent restrictions around class in Class B airspace, for example. Uh, we're almost we almost had a permanent ban on VFR oh, anywhere near a, a large city forever yeah. and ever. And yeah, that, I, I remember that. that. Yeah, yeah that that would have been. Well, it would have been catastrophic for our industry, mm. and they very nearly succeeded. Um, we were literally the, the all the paperwork was signed and about ready to to go out, and uh, we were able to avert that. But uh, it was a Herculean effort, I can tell you. <laughs> so, well, so take us back a little bit. Um, the uh, so you guys were watching it on TV. You saw the second airplane. 
Um, and, and people, I think, you know, you have that emotional response, but then at some point you start to realize, okay, you know, there's going to be something that, that happens here with GA. There's going to be impacts. We got to get to work. Um, what did you do? What, what was the rest of your day like? Um, what, what happened next? Well, when the second plane hit, I think I, I, so the first thing I did was I called up the FA command center. For those of us aren't familiar, the FA has a command center that's much like, think of mission control for, for NASA. Um, and it is the brains of the air traffic control system. Uh, the FAA command center is where all the decisions are made on ground stops, ground delays. It's where all the collaborative decision-making is done with the airlines and business aviation and GA in terms of how we're going to manage traffic flows during the day, when we're going to get segments, uh, uh, segments that are uh, saturated or sectors that are saturated and how we manage that before it happens. So all that, that's where all the decisions get made from a systemic point of view. And I called up, I, I was friends with the, the lady who was at that time in charge of the command center. And I, I told someone earlier, I, you know, she answered her, her cell phone, but she put it down. Mm. So I, we, and it, was, it was obvious just for listening for maybe two or three minutes before it, somebody hung it up. You could hear something. It was something significant was going on. It wasn't, it wasn't raised voices and yelling and, panic or chaos, but it was a heightened, there were, you know, you could hear people talking to each other and you could hear they were looking for other airplanes and it was clear that this was an ongoing situation. Um, and so for me anyway, that, that was my clue that, that we needed to really figure out what was going on, mine all our contacts and resources and just, and just basically gather in our, what turned out to be our own little war room over in the president's boardroom mm -hmm. and um, assess the situation and, and, you know, just be prepared for whatever was coming next. But, you know, people naturally gravitated together. Um, mm -hmm. But we really didn't have a lot to do in the first, I'd say, 12 hours other than like everybody else watched the news. And, and uh, once the word got it came down that that more pretty quickly that they were shutting down the system, um, we immediately started getting calls on our hotline, and we had AOPA members uh, stranded all over the country. Um, and so uh, very quickly the next day, we started in on, so how do we get people moving again? Well, um, uh, let me pause you for a quick minute. Uh, you were telling me the other day that, um, that when that process began, you could hear that there was a ground stop nationwide order that was, uh, was kind of in the background on that phone. Yeah. So, so one of the things that AOPA does really well, as you guys know, is you know disseminate information, and so that actually became a key role that AOPA played in all throughout all of this in the in the weeks after 9/11. Is there was a lot of misinformation or lack of information, uh, confusing information that was going out even through official sources like flight service. Mm. The flight service folks weren't getting information, and so they were sometimes either making it up on the fly or giving out the, the, what their best guess was. Oh, wow. And so we quickly became a clearinghouse, even for air traffic control and flight service folks. We in addition to our members, we became a clearinghouse for information, and we can talk about how we came to be in that role. But initially, like with the ground stuff, for example, trying to get information out to our members on just when they're calling in what's happening and why you can't take off again. This is serious. And, you know, because we had folks on the West Coast and all over the country that – probably weren't really comprehending why and how serious a breach it would be if they took off and tried to fly in this environment. I mean, it, you, you just didn't want to, there was no way that you could, you could uh, 
operate illegally or, or flaunt it in any way, even though it maybe felt like you were isolated from where the actual attacks occurred. There, 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 really, there, yeah, there really was a, a fear of being shot down by our own military at that point. Yep, yep, there really was. I don't know how serious that threat was, but certainly if there's fears that there's ongoing terrorist activity, um, it was just a different environment um, that yeah. they were operating under. And so you, um, you and, and others at that time almost took like a, a one-on-one approach and actually helped people uh, in, the, in the weeks after uh, get home. I mean, you, you almost served as a, a one-on-one... Um, Hand-holding, so yeah, to say. So, yeah, to speak. So, yeah, so what we did, it was kind of funny. At that time, Phil Boyer was the AOK president, and the next day after the attacks, he, he, and this is quite literal, he called me into his office, and anybody who knows Phil, he's pretty direct. And he basically, he, he said to me, grab, go grab your laptop, you know, go down to the FAA and don't come back till we're flying again. Huh. And um, so I, I literally did that, grabbed some stuff, headed down there. Um, it, it, they're right on the mall across from the Aerospace Museum. And I called my contacts at FAA on the way down and said, hey, I'm coming. Um, I, had, I knew that they had set up a temporary they called it a command post. But it was basically a temporary conference room on the 10th floor where this is pre-TSA. So there's no TSA, no Department of Homeland Security. So, But all the security agencies, uh, DOD, FAA, all of the agencies that have a hand in security and air, airspace and, and aviation were in this temporary command post. They had open lines to all of the ATC facilities. And long story short, I, I said, look, I'm coming, you know, we've got to get folks home. We've got to figure out how to get GA moving again. And as you can imagine, in Washington, GA was not the priority, yeah. even at FAA. I mean, the priority was obviously security and safety. So that's the, the number one priority. But for the FAA, its priority was getting the airlines moving again, exactly. getting air traffic moving again. Commerce, so even get commerce I, going. Really. I, yeah, commerce. And, and they don't view us as commerce, even though we know we are. But... Um, one of the challenges AOK had is our go-to when we've got a real serious problem is the Hill. I mean, we're powerful yeah. voice on the Hill. We've got a, uh, we always have had a powerful voice. The problem is the nation was dealing with things so far beyond anything that we, we could ever imagine. There was no, there was no ability to really get anything accomplished via the political process because they had bigger fish to fry, and we knew that. Sure. And so we felt like our best strategy was to get into the operations side and, and get in with the, the folks that are making the operational decisions and let's see if we can move traffic. Hmm. And we started out, and we had our war room in Frederick. This wasn't just Melissa going down there and start pretending <laughs> she's a superhero. This was a group effort, but I was the one in at FAA. The FAA, to their credit, welcomed me into this, com- this, command, this temporary command post. Hmm. I, I I will tell you I was the only non-government person in that room for the next six weeks. And they didn't uh, even they, were, they, they didn't were, even realize you were non-government for a few days. Too, yeah, huh? well, the FAA <laughs> knew, but none of the security <laughs> folks knew because and the door slammed pretty quick once yeah. I got in. <laughs> but um, but I had because of the nature of what I do, I have a government ID. Now uh-huh. it's a contractor badge, but even so, when I walked into that room, all the security folks. They saw my badge, so mm-hmm. I'm with FAA. You know, mm-hmm. it says FAA contractor on it, even though. And so, um, so they assumed for the first I don't I don't remember anymore how many days, but it was a few days at least. They didn't even they assumed I was with FAA, and I don't know when it occurred or when it when the information presented itself that I was AOPA. 
if they even knew who AOPA was, but I was basically from an association. There was a great hue and cry, and, and from then on out, uh, quite a bit of hostility um, that I shouldn't be there. But until then, that was a distinct advantage for AOPA, and, and, and it sounds like you're right on top of every single movement it, as well, the airspace opened up. It was. Well, because hmm. what we did the first few days, because VFR was grounded, I think, uh, well, VFR was grounded actually for quite a long time if you yeah. yes, it in, was in Class B. Yeah, but IFR was restored in a few days, at least limited IFR. But in the meantime, what we did with our war, we were getting calls for a hotline. We had our war room in Frederick. We were batching these. I'll call it batching these calls. I've got a guy in Oklahoma or you know Seattle, wherever that's stuck. They need to go from A to B. I would take those lists, those lists would be sent to me, and I would take them into the war room, and we would, we would de- de- process them as waivers. We, would give, get one, we got a process going pretty quickly where we could get one-time waivers to get somebody home in a window of time. And again, I don't, without researching it, I don't remember the exact specifics, but we basically got a waiver process going to allow folks that came in through our hotline to get their waiver and get back to their home base. Wasn't a waiver to fly and do whatever you wanted. It was basically the most direct route home. To get home. And that was and, typically done. And those are in the days the internet was still around, but we were talking about faxing information back and forth, hand carrying it, and hand handwritten notes to a, probably a large degree as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and FAA was just at least the folks I there were a few critical folks that I actually have still have lifelong friendships with that yeah, you know, we certainly, they certainly were, they understood the importance of this and we, you know, we got some traction on this and, and that, that we actually came back to that waiver process as a tool in our toolbox many times over the course of the next couple of years. That mm-hmm. seemed to be the, the way we could get through the security apparatus to get things moving. So, Melissa, I've always had the impression that um, since then, uh, be it, you know, after DHS was stood up or, or what even pre-DHS, uh, that... The relationship between FAA and the security agencies is, um, it's a bit unique. I mean, FAA is supposed to run the airspace, but in a large part, it feels like they they sort of give that responsibility to the security agencies. So in the room, I mean, did it feel like a, was it a collaborative relationship or was it a lot of people from like the FBI or whoever it is, DOD, saying, you will do this, you will do this, you will do this? So I will preface what I'm about to say by saying I think the security folks they the security folks have an important mission and they are diligent in carrying out that mission and their mission was not to get traffic moving again yeah. their mission was to protect and that's an that's a I can't imagine having that responsibility on my shoulders that my my decision may or may not result in you know somebody losing their life to a terrorist attack so I say on the backdrop of I get it I get what their mission my mission and even the FAA to some degree, their mission is to move air commerce. And so there was conflict Mm -hmm. because um, we had different missions, but you know, when you're in a room with folks long enough, there there's conflict, but there was also compromise. And I would say the power is, I guess we're far enough away. I have, I'm not going (laughs) to statute of (laughs) punishment or whatever is run out, but but it seems like for a while, the power, was kind of shifting back and forth. There were oh, there were good. instances, and I'll talk about like the nuclear TFR. If you all remember, yeah, the nuclear the TFR, which was yeah. a debacle, was a, a debacle from beginning to end. Oh, yeah, but that yeah. basically was decreed. I mean, it was the FAA did not want that. They knew it was not really tenable. It hmm. shut down literally a, more than a hundred airports, yeah, and no. they weren't charted, and we weren't right. allowed to chart them because that was secure information. Right. So yeah. it was just this absurd <laughs> thing. Doesn't make sense. And so it was this absurd kind of circle, circular argument, but 
you know, that was one where for a while the security folks prevailed and, you know, the FAA prevailed and we eventually got, you know, where we are today. But I'd say it was a little fluid there for a while, but hmm. FAA certainly has been able to assert itself as, as having um, authority over airspace. I mean, I think that's demonstrated by um, how we eventually restored access. You know, the FAA clearly is in command of and has sought, you know, sovereignty over the airspace. Hmm. So with that in mind, though, um, you know, we mentioned the, uh, well, I still call it the ATAs too, but, you know, the, the FRZ. <laughs> um, is the sense there that, that the FAA is collaborative with security, security agencies, or are we still sort of taking a backseat and they say, well, no, this is important. We're going to protect D.C. at all costs and end of story. That's one of those that I, I have not been in the, behind the doors when the actual you know, at the highest levels, I don't know where the decision came down on, yeah. on the D.C. ESFRA. I do know that when it was established, it was it had initially been in ATIS, and when it was established, in it was in 2003. Um, it was it was supposed to be temporary. Um, it was during, I believe, a time when we had that color coded system yeah. where it was a heightened, oh, it was a heightened, right. yeah. heightened yeah. alert. And as you know, and as we knew, even and we fought it tooth and nail. Um, we didn't want it any more than the folks in the in the that are in the escrow want it. It's in our you know area where we fly. Um, but at the end of the day, that was a battle that we were unable to overcome. And, and so the FAA and uh, there are folks in the security agencies that have worked with us to try and make it easier, and in fact have made it easier to get access. Mm -hmm. And so we continue to do that to this day. Um, yeah. We hold, there was a seminar recently where they, we brought, um, at Bay Bridge, where, where we brought in fingerprinters and, and you know, make the, and the pin process is much easier now, especially if you're going into the, 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 the FRZ inside of the ESFRA. But, but anyway, it's, it's, that's one of those ones where that was probably, the final decision was probably made at the highest levels of, yeah. Of the agency. Yeah, I would assume with DC. Well, you got to look at the fact that one of the um, one of the hijacked airplanes, uh, you know, took direct aim on the Pentagon, which is basically the heartbeat of the United States military system. So I could certainly yeah. understand the reticence to have any of that open to any kind of traffic at all. Yeah, it's uh, it's. Uh, we think it could be. We could have something that's less restrictive, and we again, we still continue to push on, on ways to make it easier, but that's the reality of the new normal. And, and, um, if anyone thinks we didn't do all we could, um, I would say they're just, they're playing wrong. Yeah. Well, well it, sounds, yeah. I, I, it sounds like we were, I, I, uh, that AOPA was, uh, front and front and center during all that, Melissa, and that, uh, I know there were other aviation organizations that were on the sidelines, but it, it sounds like that we really did our best for our association members and, and, Thank goodness you were there. Well, I think we, we all, well, I know we all did our best, and I know I can just only can speak from my experience, but when I when I went to the FAA that day, I, I really didn't come back. Um, I had a hotel room that I didn't see a whole lot the first <laughs> week or so. Um, but, you know, we, we I still joke with the one particular FAA person who, she found me on her couch a couple of nights or <laughs> early mornings, you know, asleep on her couch in her office because I didn't go home or um, didn't go back even across the street to the hotel. Oh, yeah. Because um, we were in the first the first week we were there twenty hours at least a day or at least wow. I was wow. um, and the, and it was staffed twenty four seven but I didn't have any I didn't have anybody to relieve me so I was there till all the waivers were done or whatever and so yeah and and that that pace of work certainly I wasn't working twenty hour days after the six weeks but 
I will tell you that for the next couple of years through 2003, it really was, it wasn't on paper my full-time job, but in reality working all these things that were happening because there's a whole timeline of all things that kept happening and, and we'd, we'd tamp down one crisis with a with flight restrictions somewhere and it would pop up somewhere else. And it, it felt like Groundhog Day for a long, long time, and especially around holidays and, and significant events. Yeah. Because there was a, a fear that that's when there was going to be another mm-hmm. tax. So it was constantly, I lost a lot of holidays yeah. <laughs> um, to these last minute crazy ideas that, that folks had about, you know, restricting air air traffic and primarily aimed at GA. Even still today, I mean, right before the Super Bowl comes out, every year we do get some information from the FAA. Uh, We also um, look at our own Air Safety Institute about some of the safe flying procedures that we need to, you know, check NOTAMs and and, uh, make sure that we're up to date on that. But that's something that's lived on even even since then. Yeah, and one one of the things, it's a good point you made, uh, David, but one of the things that, that became glaringly obvious, even though we all knew the NOTAM system, it still does, although we've made some improvements. We knew the NOTAM system was inadequate, but after 9-11 with TFRs, we realized not only was it inadequate, it just, it was plain, it didn't work. Hmm. And that's, we actually implemented, we still have it to this day, we implemented the AOK NOTAM desk, we call it, but we staff a position where, and we started this process where we will email out via, uh, if there's a TFR in your area and you're on our list, you're on our email list, you get a notice from AOPA to this day uh, that there's a, a security TFR uh, happening. Now, we don't, we don't send out TFRs for sporting events, um, the ones because they're, you know where the event is, and we have resources for that. But for, this, but for the security TFRs, for mm-hmm. VIP movements, we send out information. And we know that system works. Um, we know we have anecdotal evidence of that when we had over the, all these years, we've only had one glitch where TFR didn't go out, and we, they had an uptick in incursions, and we contacted uh, three pilots that had an incursion and said, wow. yep, they, they relied on our, our email, and they didn't get it. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, now, we, made, we, we remedied that with them, and we, we resolved the issue with them uh, you know, in terms of their enforcement action. We took care of that and helped them through that process, but I think that demonstrated that, that people rely on this system. Now, legally... You still have to get your briefing and you have to get your NOTAM from your from the NOTAM system, but yeah. but it's still the reality of it is people are relying on that, and we can't go. We, we that's why we continue it to this that, day. Mm-hmm. That's really that's a good point. Also, we should bring up that uh, since two thousand and nine, you know, we've worked well. We've worked with NORAD for a long time, and since two thousand and nine, I think those type of incidents have gone down by fifty percent. Yep. Yeah, we've worked real hard. We have some good partners at NORAD um, that we've worked with to do educational outreach. Good deal. So I'm I'm just reading the um, the timeline that we're going to have on the website um, about the work that all you guys really were doing back then, and uh, it's it's pretty fascinating because uh, you know I, I I was flight training at the time, and so I, I I was also in college, and so I knew what was going on, and I I had a general sense of what was going on in aviation, but I I didn't live it, um, and uh, and so just reading all this, it's just uh, it's fascinating. It's like September 11th happens, and then day by day. You can see stuff, as you mentioned, gets locked down, then brought back. You know, it's like the 18th, crop dusting and aerial photos are permitted. Um, looks like 22nd, flight training was allowed. I got a story about that myself. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. and It's like, you know, the, uh, the nuclear TFR, which you were talking about, November 6th. And it's just point after point after point. And, you know, I think people forget. It's like, uh, you know, we, we had, well, we had you and, and others who were, working these things. I mean, these are human issues that 
people were actually working on. This stuff didn't just happen by accident. No, and um, going back to a personal story, I was uh, finishing my flight trading, and on Saturday the 8th, I was uh, scheduled to go fly uh, from Atlanta to Chattanooga to get my check ride. The weather wasn't all that great, so um, my examiner told me if I got there by a certain time, we would do the oral and the flight test. If it was you know after that time, we'd just do the oral. So it was after that time, and we just did the oral, and he said, well, David, come back on September 11th, and we'll finish up. So we all know what happened on September 11th. What happened after that, in my case, was I'd already paid you know, the examiner, and VFR traffic was shut down, flight instruction was shut down, mm -hmm. IFR traffic was shut down for uh, several days also. And as it gradually started to open up, I called my in, first my instructor, and then he called um, the examiner, and they determined that you could, in fact, administer an FAA check ride. And they had not ceased to make that happen. So I uh, quickly got on the phone, got an IFR instructor, and we were actually able to fly out of the Atlanta Class B airspace at that time with an IFR um, instructor. And we flew to Chattanooga, and I did my VFR check ride on, on the 22nd of September. <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was the first day that I think VFR flight training ops were yeah, allowed. Yeah, it was allowed, yeah. Yep. You might have been the first one after 9-11 to, to do a check ride like that, you know, a GA check ride. So, well, that's what, you gonna find out. That's you what I was thinking. I might be, I might be, but I will tell you this. It was well, very, no, no, wait, did you pass? That's I did, important. I did. Okay. And it was scary, I might <laughs> add, because I, you know, I was used to flying out of a Class B, uh, a Class D airspace out of Peachtree Cab in Atlanta, but a, a lot of Class B airspace around. Yeah. So I was used to hearing a lot of traffic on the radio, and there was very little to no traffic on the radio yeah, and that weird. was a class charlie airspace over in chattanooga and generally you would expect to hear other people but it was absolutely quiet we were the only people in the pattern yeah. and um actually i think my examiner um, ben gave me a little bit of an easier ride because he was just happy to have someone yeah right happy you know? to go flying. but you know thinking about that melissa and ian that really that is you're talking about the economic effect and taxes and what ga brings into the environment uh, fuel taxes, you know, people staying at hotels when they're taking flight lessons or exams like me, and just the general interstate commerce with GA, all that was, was put to a halt for, for quite a while. Yeah, yeah and, that's, and that's a great story, and it's, it's, it's also really, that's why the, what we invented to get us flying, the enhanced Class B was so important because there was, I said, as I said, there was a regulatory effort, an emergency rulemaking underway to ban GA aircraft, VFR, I should say, not all, but wow. VFR flight within a 30 nautical mile veil up to infinity uh, for all Class B. Wow. And, um, and that got a lot of traction. And that, I, I, it really felt like if we lost that one, um, it would stifle GA when you think about that's where a lot of airplanes are based. Uh, and we really invented enhanced class, what we called ECB, enhanced Class B, hmm. Had to do um, something. Had to get something and, going, right? Yeah. But the but, but the scary part about that is once you implement something, kind of like the DCSFRA, it's hard to, to un, you know to make yeah. it go away. Yeah. But it was that balancing act. It's like, okay, are we going to get our foot in the door, or are we going to get you know the door slammed? And, and we felt like it was a calculated risk to go down this enhanced Class B route. Right. And it paid off. But um, I, I don't know what we. I, I don't personally. It was very stressful. Um, I'm sure it was for everybody involved, but it was, you know, understanding that, you know, there's a lot at stake here and you don't want to, 
you don't yeah. want to fail. And it, it became very stressful in the, in that command room, as I said, because there was some hostility. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I, I feel like, you know, everybody at the end of the day was working towards similar goals, but mm-hmm. they certainly, there was a lot of resentment that AOPA was there on some people's part, not everybody, certainly not the FAA, mm-hmm. but it did, it did get to a point and I'm, I'm not proud of it, but I kind of, had a boiling point at one point where I, I basically blew up and, and I, I basically said, you know, I'm not leaving. I, I'm not leaving unless and until the administrator comes down here and, and, and hauls me out. And I kind of like sat <laughs> Good down. Good for you. Yeah, but I, as soon as I yelled that, like to no one in particular, I just kind of was blowing up because I heard there was just some pa- passive aggressive stuff going on. And then I'm looking at my computer, going, "Okay, now what do I do? I just put a stake in the ground." And yeah, yeah. Are they going to call security? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Me Who is this crazy person <laughs> so in this room? That, that was a pretty low moment because it was like I lost my cool. Uh, I put a stake in the ground that I had nothing. I had no power to back it up. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, and so I'm yeah, if they call your bluff. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what you know. That, but, that's what happens on two and a half hours of sleep, I guess, right? Yeah, but it, you know, it didn't. It, we moved on. I was told, you know, but, I, but what it did do is it reaffirmed that at least at the levels at FAA that I was working at, they they weren't going to allow. They wanted AOPA there. Yeah, yeah. Those so, relationships that you had built really paid a dividend at that point, and yeah, they knew you were serious. And we, at that, I and mean, really, you you were representing, you know, hundreds of thousands of pilots. Yeah, it was yeah. it was an interesting time for sure. Yeah. It was a good. I, I you form relationships with folks when you go through that, that, that there's a lot of folks at FAA that are still at FAA that have just become dear friends and also great colleagues. I mean, they, they really get GA and I know we like to bash the FAA sometimes or, or we're, you know, we want to, our members like it when we're poking the, you know, the bear, Yeah. but I can tell as a lobbyist or uh, advocate, I can tell you it's a lot easier to work with folks when we're being collaborative rather than poking them in with a stick. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but now that might lead to a, um, something else I was going to ask you about and uh, moving ahead a couple of years. We had some activity in 2003. Uh, the U S was on the brink of some overseas uh, wars. And all of a sudden we saw more onerous TFRs pop up and specifically around around Disneyland and Disney World. Mm-hmm. So um, I know that we've actually had some movement in that in the past uh, month or so where they're now charted, number one. And um, uh, Nobuyo, one of our other AOPA uh, advocates, is working to restore some types of photo and aerial uh, mapping operations in those two TFRs. Well, there is a waiver process. Um, hmm. and, you know, if you to get a waiver to any TFR, really. But, um, but yeah, the, the the challenge though with the Disney TFRs is that they are so the F. We were obviously opposed to those TFRs. We felt like it was a move on Disney's part to they didn't want banner towers over their parks that that weren't their advertisers, and we feel like they used this the security as a uh, a surrogate issue to get this TFR that they wanted for many, many, many years before 9-11. Hmm. They did not like banner towers over their parks. And so the FAA, to their credit again, would not approve. They didn't feel it was a valid, there wasn't a valid concern from the FAA's perspective. Okay. Safety concern. And so the, the FAA declined to implement the TFRs. And hmm. we, you know, so we won the battle. Good. The, the challenge is then, so then it went, it became a, it, it was Disney one via the congressional route and they were able to get congressional language that mandated the TFRs. And what's funny is they're one of the reasons they weren't chartered is because they're TFRs. The FAA doesn't chart TFRs. 
and the congressional language, because the the regulators that wrote it really didn't understand what they were writing. They wrote it that you shall a permanent type. It's a permanent TFR, so it's a permanent temporary mm. flight restriction. <laughs> <That's> so weird. <laughs> And so then the battle became, well, well it's not going away. It's, it's by legislation. Yeah, the nomenclature is wrong. It shouldn't be called a TFR. It shouldn't be called prohibited or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah but But the FAA wouldn't refuse to chart it because it's a TFR and they don't chart TFRs. And so mm. that went on for many, many years. Mm. Those are the kinds of silly arguments I have on a daily basis <laughs> in my job. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, we finally prevailed and said, look, we get – you know, we're and we're concerned. We don't want to set a precedent of charting TFRs because, again, they're temporary by nature. But this is just a wholly different situation. It made no sense to stick to the regu- how the you know the regulations are written that that you can't chart TFRs. And so, at the end of the day, yeah, we we want them charted um, just so hmm. pilots are aware that they're there. Hmm. Gotcha. So um, now we're 15 years back. Uh, from 9-11. And so obviously you, you're, you should be, and in, in are, I assume, proud of a, a lot of what was accomplished there in the first couple of years. So what about the next few years? I mean, what do you see in terms of changes, if any, do you think, to the security situation? Or, you know, I mean, there's been a couple of lasting things with flight training. Um, I, I, what do you think the future holds for us? I think we're going to continue to see occasional pressure to uh, maybe expand security requirements hmm. for general aviation. Um, I, uh, but that said, I, there's no, there hasn't been a real serious push. Um, the last big push was on um, larger general aviation aircraft above 12,500 pounds to have them subject to more airline-style type security. Yeah. But even that hasn't gone anywhere in years. So I think I mean we're certainly I think we're at the new normal and I don't see any concerted I don't see anything on the horizon in terms of significant concerted efforts to do anything that would restrict GA or or impact our freedom to fly but you know I say that all against the backdrop of it we have to be our own best you know eyes and ears whether it's through the airport watch program or whatever, we have to be vigilant as operators. I mean, we know our airports best. We know when there's a bad actor or potentially somebody acting suspicious, and we have to be vigilant because all bets are off if something happens again, even if, regardless of what sector of aviation it happens in. You know, that it's what we don't see coming that that we need to be prepared for, ironically. Well, you bring up Um, a good point, which is the uh, the airport watch. program and that was one of the good things that did come out of all this if we are looking at a silver lining to that cloud and i was going to ask you um, besides the airport watch program where we are the eyes and ears for ga at our respective airfields what can our aopa members and other pilots do to keep things moving in the right direction fly responsibly is the biggest one i mean don't violate a tsr (laughs) and i know (laughs) i say that i say that you know kind of tongue-in-cheek nobody wants to do that but gone are the days, in my opinion, where you can get away with just looking at the Weather Channel, even if you know your airport. Yeah. And you, I mean, we all should call flight service. But uh, I know pre-9-11, a lot of folks didn't. If it was a nice day at Frederick and you just were going to go up in the traffic pattern, a lot of folks were not doing due diligence with getting no tans. And you just can't do that anymore because... There potentially are flight restrictions anywhere a VIP is traveling, and we don't know where they're traveling. And especially, like for example, in an election year like this year, there's there are more TFRs. So I think it's remarkable that we've reduced the number of incursions, even with the increase in TFRs in, over the last year. But 
but just be vigilant and, and, and make sure that you're informed and you're flying, you're flying responsibly. That seems to me to be the biggest uh, thing that you can do. And I just, uh, uh, back to airport watch just for a minute, minute cause we don't talk about it a lot, mm-hmm. but airport watch after nine 11, there was a, the biggest threat initially was airline style security at GA airport. Now that threat mm-hmm. morphed into airspace restrictions after we got everybody flying again. But, but um, we knew we had to be proactive with something, and it had to be meaningful. So um, that's really where the airport watch concept was born. And it couldn't be just literally like a sign with a telephone number. There had to be an infrastructure behind it, and there is. There's a, there's a hotline, a dedicated hotline. And so, and we did a lot of educational outreach initially on that program, and, and I think it helped us have something to fight back with when there was talk of doing other things with security that, that, you know, that were our best eyes and ears. And that was a real um, concerted effort to, to be proactive and not wait for the uh, government to propose something that we wouldn't like. The other thing that you did touch on um, before we wrap up, you touched on the fact that we needed to keep an eye on NOTAMs. And one thing that recently happened was the new uh, drone rules that went into effect. So I was just going to throw out onto the plate that maybe there might be NOTAMs involved with some drone operations that would uh, give us even more cause to double-check things before we go. Even after the rules now in place for a small UAS, there are still folks operating on what's called a Part 333 exemption. So, um, and most Part 333 exemptions, that's where you get a specific waiver of authorization for a specific type of operation that you're doing in a specific place. And most of those require most of those agreements require that the that the drone operator under that exemption file a NOTAM. And so you can get NOTAMs for those drone operations. Under the, the news commercial drone or the small UAS rule, there's no NOTAM requirement, but there you, there is a you do have the ability through Lockheed Martin to file a drone NOTAM. Um, but so, so yeah, there, that that information is now there are drone NOTAMs in the in the uh, NOTAM system. But um, since our goal is integration, not segregation, mm-hmm. um, that's that's probably something as we continue to integrate drones, we see the, the drone NOTAM going away. But right now it is a good tool to give you situational awareness of where you might encounter um, drone operations. I mean, the vast majority of them are below 400 feet and away from airports, so you're, you're deconflicted by those parameters. But there are drones that have the ability and are approved to operate in airspace where you might be operating as well. So it's always good to check for drone items as well. It's a good point. And I know that uh, you are also going to serve on that key drone committee as our eyes and ears on that as we look to integrate them more into our system. And of course, we appreciate that as well. So yeah, I, uh, point of clarification, I will, Mark Baker is actually our rep on the big, called the DAC, the Drone Advisory Committee. That's uh-huh. the CEO level participation yeah. where we plug in, but absolutely myself and staff. We will all be plugged in, supporting Mark on that. There'll be various subcommittees. It's how we do, it's how we work in Washington. Hmm. And we, we actually have our first meeting next Friday. Spot news. There we go. First meeting <laughs> next Friday. We appreciate that. Is there, uh, is there anything, as we look back, uh, we appreciate your help and your time today on a busy day and a busy week. Is there anything that, that we could have done differently back then as we look forward to the future? So I think on 9-11, I think, we reacted very quickly, but I think we lacked the capacity to imagine that we could have the system shut down hmm. completely. And so I think just 
being vigilant even when you're thinking through scenarios and things that, and, and contingency planning uh, for when the next crisis happens or when something happens that's going to impact you. Not be limited by your imagination, and I don't mean imagination in a good way, right. but understand yeah. that that the worst-case scenario that you're thinking of probably isn't the worst-case scenario. Wow. Yeah. And so just be mindful of that um, and not get too complacent in thinking that you know things are good and they're always going to be good. Words to live by. We yeah. appreciate your time and uh, the remembrances back to September 11th, 2001, which is a day that changed all of us uh, here in the States and really around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Great. Melissa. Thank you. So it was really interesting to hear from Melissa Rudiger, who uh, back in 2001 was the VP of Air Traffic Services, and we sure appreciate her dedication and the dedication of really everyone at the FAA and AOPA and other uh, aviation entities that helped us get back in the air. Yeah, I think the lesson there and, and one thing that really struck me about talking to her was just how much work it really was. And I think, you know, we all take a lot of it for granted. I mean, you're a member of these organizations or... Uh, you know, you, you just watch stuff on the news and you just, it just sort of happens. And you don't think about the work that goes into it. I mean, you know, she was down there for weeks. Uh, there amazing. were there were a lot of gears turning and there was a lot of give and take. Yeah, absolutely. To get something done, you need to give a little something up. And uh, they were doing the best they could to get us back in the air and get those stranded pilots back to their airplanes and back to their to their home bases. Yeah. Good. OK. So, David, um We'll see you in a couple of weeks for Hangar Talk, but in the meantime, how can uh, folks contact us? You know, Ian, that, I'm glad you asked that question because we now have an email address for Hangar Talk. It's quite simply hangartalk at aopa.org. Also, you can find our podcast under the Training and Safety tab. Look through our online learning tab and look down and click through to the podcast, and you can get our archival podcasts. Yep, and hopefully uh, iTunes and Google Play by the time you are hearing this. Awesome. Well, it's been a lot of fun today on Hangar Talk. Great. Enjoy talking to you, David. All See right. you soon. Till next time.